it's a privilege to open up his word and explore it together this morning. Well, last time I was up here, we closed out chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John. And you may remember we closed it out by looking at two application points, two points of application, one being uh, disciples of Christ introduce people to Christ, and the second one being how are you with recognising that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, preaching a sermon or listening to a sermon is the easy part. The hard part is when the sermon's over and actually applying those truths to my life. That's where I find the real challenge begins. The practice of actually putting what I preach into practice, putting the Bible into practice. And I thought I'd share this morning a little story um, about what happened to me since the last time I spoke. Uh, because even though we're all accountable to put the Bible into practice, if there's anyone who's expected to put into practice the things that I'm preaching, it's me, because I'm the one preaching. So I was dwelling on the point the disciples of Christ bring people to Christ. And I was dwelling on that one because I could really see that in John chapter 1, how with John the Baptist, and then Andrew, then Philip, then Nathaniel, all bringing people to Christ. So after that last sermon I preached, I was really thinking on that point, and I started praying about it and giving it to the Lord, and asked the Lord, give me courage to bring people to you, to introduce people to you. Lord, please give me opportunities uh, to do that. Share, give me opportunities to share the gospel. And I thought I'd share with you this one encounter that I had because, well, the Lord answers prayer according to his will, doesn't he? The next day, I don't know if it was a Monday or a Tuesday, it wasn't long after I had preached, after I had preached we were driving to work and I was going to work with my mum and Mel and as we approached our multi-postal office in Wanganui where I work, yeah, the Lord answered prayer. You wouldn't believe it. There was a, a car parked halfway across our driveway on the, an awful angle. So as we approached, we saw it, and I wasn't driving. Mel was driving, and he had to sort of manoeuvre his way past this car up the drive to our office. And it's not a long drive, so when we got up the drive we weren't far from this car and I got out and I thought well I'd better go over and just see what's going on because it just it just looks odd so I went over and there's this lady talking on the phone uh, she was in the driver's seat and I asked her you know are you okay and she goes I've got a flat I must have driven over something because my tires punctured and I'm stuck I don't know how to change a tire I thought, well, what an opportunity, Lord, thank you. <laughs> so I offered to change the tyre. And, you know, we pulled all the stuff out of the boat and I was getting down there changing the tyre. Mel came over and he just took over uh, changing the tyre, which left me to talk with this lady. And we started talking and she asked, uh, what do you do? What, what is this place? And I wanted to seize the opportunity. So I said, oh, we're a Christian organisation. We 
send out gospel literature, I said, we basically tell people that God can forgive them of their sins. Are you interested? And she just looked at me blankly and <laughs> she must have been thinking in her head, oh, of all the places I could have got stuck, <laughs> I'm here. Because she just looked at me and said nothing and she asked me, have you got a bathroom I could use? <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? So she walked off and, and I'm just left there, just standing there, and Mel's changing the tire. He's just grinning at me like, yeah, what have you done? And I thought, oh my goodness, I blew it, but I'm not, I'm not going to let this opportunity go to waste. I thought to myself, she can't stay in there forever. We've got her car. She's going to have to come out at some point, and, and when she comes out, I'm going to share the gospel with her. So I go inside, and, and we hand out gospel literature. So... I grab some of our literature, some tracks and some other things and go out and I'll just wait for her and yeah, <laughs> I don't think she wanted to come out. But see, she came out a little while later and, and I, just, I just said to her, look, I don't know what you believe about God, um, but I have these tracks here and I just want to share what the Bible says. Um, about God and our position before God. The Bible says that, you know, all of us are rebels against God. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short. Um, and we are under God's wrath. And you can see the world around us, the turmoil, the wickedness that goes on, and that is all a result of our rebellion against God. It's our sin. Uh, we hurt other people, and it's, it's a disobedience to God. But, you know... Though we deserve death, um, there is hope, and this is the good news, is that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came down and he took our punishment on the cross so that we can be set free from sin and um, we can have right relationship with God restored. And she was very polite. Uh, she, she just let me talk, and she didn't say anything, and it was really awkward. <laughs> but I thought I'd share that with you. Um, just to bring some reality that we're all in the same boat and I get nervous when it comes to those opportunities sharing the gospel, I, I really do I was nervous to talk to her um, but I just had to commit it to the Lord and if disciples of Christ bring people to Christ then that's what I'm called to do and it's not my job to save anyone. It's only my job to share the gospel. And she didn't say anything. Uh, it wasn't a Acts chapter 2 moment. You know, what must I do to be saved? She just awkwardly stood there, and that's fine. Um, it's not... Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I don't know what she thinks about when, she, when her head hits the pillow at night. And... <clears throat> Perhaps, yeah, perhaps, um, or if she rejects it, well, then the Lord will use that in judgment as well and say, well, you heard my gospel message and you rejected it. So, anyways, I thought I would just share that with you as a bit of encouragement um, and to commit these things to the Lord and um, just trust him in it. Uh, like John the Baptist said, I'm just a voice, you know, I'm just a voice. Well, 
that's what I wanted to share with you this morning before we open the Bible. But if you'd open uh, your Bibles, please, and we'll go to John chapter 2. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 1, for that's where we are up to in our journey through the gospel according to John. We rounded out chapter 1. Chapter 1 was um, John's testimony of who Christ was in verse 1 to 18. Then we went to John the Baptist, testi- uh, John the Baptist ministry. And then we got a, a picture or a preview of, of Christ's ministry, how he's drawing people to himself and he drawed the first disciples. And now we're in chapter 2. And this is Christ starting his public ministry. And he starts his public ministry with a miracle. It's his first miracle that he starts with. It's his miracle of turning the water into wine. And we'll start in verse 1, obviously, and we'll we'll read down to verse 11. But just before we do, to give you some structure of how I've broken our text up this morning, I've broken it into four parts, and it's four parts that you'll see. The four parts are the wedding, the the, the crisis, the miracle... And then the purpose. So we'll look at those four headings as we go through uh, this this morning. And I hope that they'll act as some sort of guide for us. And then at the end, we'll touch on two points of application. Uh, So similar style or format as how we rounded off John chapter 1. But let's read verse 1 down to verse 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does it have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw, out, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now let's start with the wedding. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, a wedding in ancient times was a massive social event. It was a major event. We're talking about a week-long party, a week-long celebration. Unlike weddings in our culture, which can last a day, typically half a day, Jewish ceremonies, and particularly Galilean ceremonies, they would last about a week. So it's a long party. It's a long ceremony. And a lot of a preparation went into this ceremony. You know, the bride and groom, about a year before their marriage ceremony, they would be betrothed, and they would be publicly 
betrothed and now enter into what's called the betrothal period, basically their engagement. As long as the families were happy and in agreement, uh, this would take place. And that would kickstart the preparations for the wedding ceremony. Now, in that year, um, long preparation or betrothal, they were unified together. They were bound legally together, but it was they weren't um, officially married. It was sort of a legal marriage that they entered into. Um, they were pledged to one another, and they couldn't uh, be separated. They couldn't revoke it unless they filed for a divorce or one of them died. <clears throat> but it wasn't a f complete marriage. It was sort of one step back from marriage. They wouldn't live together uh, and they wouldn't consummate the marriage until after the ceremony. Um, but now that they were betrothed, preparations for the wedding ceremony would start. And this would, this would take a couple months. Most likely it would take the whole year to finalise everything. And it's important to understand that the wedding preparations largely fell upon the groom. It was the man's responsibility. The bride, she was responsible for getting herself ready and by taking care of what she was going to wear and all her bridesmaids and that, and they would gather together materials and, and put together dresses. But the groom, on the other hand, this was his time to prove himself. He had a year to prove himself that he can provide for this girl that he's going to marry, that he, can, that he has what it takes to be a husband to his soon-to-be bride. So the responsibility for building the home on his father's house uh, where they were going to move into fell on him. The responsibility for the wedding expenses and preparations, all the costs fell upon the groom. He had to provide for the ceremony, the catering, the organising, everything. It was all part of him proving himself to his family and also to the bride's family that he is a man and he can do this and he can raise a family, he can take care of their daughter, <clears throat> um, and he would, he would have to work hard f for a year to get all of this sorted, and that's just a bit of background behind what went into the ceremony, so when we come to the ceremony, if we jump ahead now to the wedding day, it's been a year since they were betrothed, the work is done, the man has worked hard, the waiting is over, and the preparations are finished. All the catering is organised, invites are now are out, and now it's, it's time to officially tie the knot. And Jesus and Jesus' mother are invited to witness this and, and to come to the ceremony. And chances are it's a small community. They all knew each other. <clears throat> they, of course, would have known the bride and groom. That's why they were invited there. But it's a small region up in Galilee in that area that they were. So I imagine that it would have been a quite close-knit community, perhaps a rural community maybe, um, but they were most likely relatives or cousins or family friends uh, that they that were getting married. But anyways, they, they accept the invite and they go along. Now at some point during this week-long event, this wedding ceremony, the wine starts getting low. And it gets to the point where all the, the worries uh, coming true that it gets lower and lower and the people will keep drinking and drinking and the ceremony is going on and on and on and it gets to the point where now there's no more wine. The bride and groom, they've run out, which leads us to the crisis. 
the second part of this narrative, which is the crisis, and this is not unjustly called a crisis. This was a massive social humiliation to run out of wine. A mistake this large, failing to cater for your guests at your own wedding, was likely to draw enormous shame, which on the couple's lives, could, they could potentially never outlive. They would have that black mark against their name. And it would be on both of them, but most of the shame would be upon the groom. And what a devastation it would have been for him, because if there's anything he's been trying to prove for the past year, it's that he can provide. It's that he can, he can take care of this girl. And if he's to run out of wine and not able to cater for these people at the wedding, it's almost like... He's failed on his first day on the job. It's like his first moment to prove himself, and he's just, he's, he's whiffed it. It's, 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 it's terrible for him. And it was a different culture back then. You know, there's actually evidence that points to the bride and groom's family filing a lawsuit against the groom for this very thing, for running out of wine because they had all the hopes and uh, that this man can take care but on his first day on the job he he failed and so it was massive humiliation and if we go back to our text verse 3 it's mary jesus's mother that comes and tells jesus about this crisis that they have run out of wine which from that i think it's pretty safe to assume that Mary must have been involved in the catering or serving or some sort of organization at the wedding um, because she's in the know. Before this publicly, uh, this tragedy becomes public knowledge, she already knows about it. And when it comes to her attention, her immediate response is to go find Jesus and tell him about it. And my question is, why did she go to Jesus? Why did Mary think it's necessary that during this wedding ceremony she tells Jesus that they've run out of wine? Now some people have proposed that she went to him expecting him to do a miracle. I personally think that's a little presumptuous uh, Mary, of course, knew that Jesus was special, but she had never seen him do a miracle. So I think it's a little bit bold to put that into the text that she's expecting him to do something that she's never seen him do before. Some people have also proposed that she wasn't outright expecting a miracle, but she wanted him to do something in order to reveal to the people that he's divine, that he's the Messiah. Possibly, but I, I, I tend to think there's something much simpler in the text. There's something, there's a explanation far simpler than that. And to help us understand, we've got to ask the question, when was the last time Joseph was mentioned? If you think about it, Jesus' earthly dad 
Have you ever noticed that Joseph is never mentioned throughout Jesus' ministry? It's most likely that Mary's a widow. We know for sure that Mary's a widow at the cross because Jesus passes his care of his mother onto John. But even before that, Joseph is never mentioned. The only time we hear of Joseph after Christ has been born is when Jesus is 12 years old, when they were at the, in Jerusalem and they had lost him in the temple and they found him and he was with the teachers asking and answering questions. Now you're probably wondering where I'm going with this, but I think it's reasonable to assume that Mary is just doing what she naturally did. She's a widow, and she had learned to trust Jesus for his leadership and his care. Jesus being the oldest son, the responsibility of taking care of his mother would have fell on him. When Joseph passed, the responsibility now is on Christ. And I think in this story, she's just doing what she's always done when she encountered a problem. She went to the man in her life. He's the oldest son. And I don't think that would have been hard for her. I mean, who wouldn't go to him every time you encountered a problem? He would have had the solution for anything. He wouldn't have been puzzled by anything. He would have been able to fix anything. Nothing tripped him up. So it wouldn't have been hard for Mary to rely on him. Um, I know for Denny, when she comes to me, there's a leaky tap or something, there's just some things I can't do. I, I'm pretty challenged uh, domestically. I'm not really that way inclined. Usually, usually this is how it goes. She'll come to me, oh, oh Nick, the tap is leaking. Oh, okay, yeah, let's go have a look, like the confident man that I am. And I just stare at it, and, and my two thoughts are, I'm going to have to watch YouTube when she's not watching, or... Why don't we just ring your dad? He's a plumber. (laughs) He can fix it. But see, for Mary, that would have never been an issue. Uh, He's... Nothing would have tripped him up. He's God in human flesh. So when the wine runs out, she does what she always does, and she goes to Jesus. And I find Jesus' response fascinating in verse 4. Verse 4 says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Woman. It's the same way he addressed her when he was nailed to the cross. He used that same uh, name, that same expression, woman. And our translation sounds rude, but in the original it's not rude, it's, it's not cold, but it's not warm either. It's not an endearing term, it's not embracing. The best example I could give you of what he's saying is, is our expression, ma'am. It's, it's polite, but it's not personal, it's not... In a, it's not a way you'd greet your mum. But he says, woman, 
What does it have to do with us? The literal translation of what does that have to do with us is what to me and to you. He's saying, what, what do we have in common over this issue? What, what about this makes it an us thing? Why are you involving me? What to you, what is it to you and to me? Why, does it con- why would it concern me because it concerns you? That's what he's saying to her. And it's a, it's a subtle rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke towards his mum. Now, I hope you get this because in rebuking his mother, what he's doing is he's creating distance between them. Why? Well, it must be viewed in light of the cross. He says, my hour has not yet come. That's a reference to the cross. And he's creating distance between them because he's about to embark on his public ministry, the very reason why he came to earth. And he needs to make it clear from the very beginning that he is free from any human authority. Even his mother's authority. He is only one under one authority, and that's the authority of his father who is in heaven. So whatever authority Mary once had over him, he needs it to go. It's, it needs it to go. What does this have to do with us? He's telling her there's no longer an us thing. Whatever human relationship we've had up to this point needs to change, mum. Essentially, he's saying, mum, I'm no longer your son. You have to see that I'm your creator. I'm your creator in human flesh. Can you see that he's distancing himself? And it's from this moment that he starts saying, I must do my father's will. I must do my father's will. I only do what the father tells me. I only speak what the father tells me to speak. I only do what the father tells me to do. And I think it's reasonable to think, not only because Joseph's not mentioned, um, that Mary's a widow, but also when he's saying this, I must do my father's will. Um, if Joseph's not around, it's very clear to the people hearing him that he's not talking about his earthly dad's will, he's talking about his heavenly father's will. But he needs to make it clear to all people who have known him before his public ministry, even his mum, that they need to start seeing him differently. And he creates this distance between him and Mary. And later on, we, we even see that people come to him and say, Jesus, your mother and brother are looking for you. And he, he's very clear. He says, who is my mother? Who is my brothers? Behold, my mothers and my brothers and my sisters, those who do the will of my father in heaven are my mother and my brother and my sisters. It's not as if he's done with her. He still loves her, of course. He, we see his care for her at the cross when he puts his care, her care into John's hands. But he needs to make it clear, I'm not your son, I'm God. And 
think this must have been tough for Mary. I mean, like any mother, she nursed him, she taught him how to walk, she fed him, she cared for him, she schooled him. Of course, this must have been difficult, but at the same time, she must have known this day had to come. She treasured all the notable things about him in her heart, but she can't see God as her baby. She has to view God as her Messiah. The mother-child relationship was only temporary. It's not eternal like the Catholic Church teaches with their Mariology, that if you want Jesus to do something, just ask Mary because he can't resist his mother's will. That's, just, that's, that's blasphemous. It's, it was only a temporary relationship. And you can see that throughout his ministry, he's, he's making it clear that he's put distance between him and his mum because he's, Mary's not his mum anymore. Mary is his creation. So he tells her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And she gets the message, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She just leaves. She just entrusts the situation to him. And she bails out. And it just happens to be that after he's made it clear that he's not concerned about the situation because his mother is. He is concerned about the situation because his father in heaven is. And it just turns out that his father wants him to do the miracle. But he needed to make it clear that it's not because his mother, Mary, wants something to happen, it's because his father wants something to happen. Which leads us to the miracle. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. It's roughly about 500 litres. So they're big pots. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Now what he's asking them to do here isn't actually as easy as it sounds. They didn't have a garden hose back in those days. They, had, they would have had to take these to the well or cart water from the well to the pots. But they don't seem to mind the task because they do it, and it doesn't say that they grumble or anything. And they fill them up to the brim, which is vital to note because that means that there's no room to add anything. If they filled them up halfway or three-quarters of the way, someone could have accused Jesus of having a bit of concentrate up his sleeve or something, and when no one's looking, just popping it in and making wine. But that detail, they filled it up to the brim, is crucial because there's no room to add anything. And he's not even the one that filled them up. So he can't be accused of tampering with the water. He's not even involved. He's got his, these servants doing it who have not even the slightest of dear idea of what's about to happen. They don't even know who he is as far as we're concerned. They may have heard about him, but they don't know he's the Messiah. He, he isn't publicly expressed that or shown any miracles. So 
they just fill the water pots to the brim. And these pots were used for uh, ceremonial cleansing. The Jews washed everything. It was a cleansing pot. That's what they were used for. That's why they were sitting there. And I just want to stop here for just a wee bit because I think this an observation we can make in Jesus asking the servants to fill up the pots. Have you ever wondered why Jesus just didn't fill them up himself? It would have been a lot easier, surely. If he can make wine out of nothing, he could have thought the water into existence too. But he doesn't. He could have just said, oh, wow, what do we have there? Six pots of wine, you know, or... Look, there's water in those pots, but he doesn't. He involves human help in his miraculous act. And I think he does this for two reasons. Firstly, uh, there's no way the miracle can be falsified if he's not the one filling up the pots. We touched on that earlier. And secondly, this is what I wanted to bring out. There's something about God that loves to involve mankind in his miraculous acts. Can you see that in there? He could have done it all by himself, but he chose to involve men in this act, and he chose to involve them in order to show them something of who he is. And so they can be marveled and they can enjoy the miracle too. Isn't that wonderful? And there's some application in that for us too. God brings us in on his work and we're rewarded simply for doing the thing that he asked us to do and it's things that he could do. There's nothing I can't do. An example would be, if you take the sharing of the gospel, God could easily do that. He doesn't need us to share the gospel like he's incapable of doing it. But he chooses to involve us. He chooses men and women to go about doing things in which he's asked them to do. And then he rewards those men and women for obeying what he's asked them to do and it's the ones who obey that enjoy the benefit it's all about God working with man and the relationship and showing us something of who he is and it's the obedient ones who are blessed and receive joy and even one day are rewarded for their faithfulness simply in doing something that God could have done but he wants to involve man because he wants relationship with man. It's two parties working together in unity, and I believe it's a beautiful thing. But let's continue. Verse 8. And he said to them, Draw something out, draw some out now, and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter had tasted the water, which had become wine, and they did not know where. where Wait, what? What do you mean the water had become wine? It, 
Don't you just love how understated this miracle is, as if it's like it's no big deal? Jesus just transformed 500 liters of water into wine just by his very thoughts. And all it says is that the, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, it doesn't even tell us how he did it. It doesn't even say he waved his hand over it or he, he prayed over it or no actions. It's just he, he just thought it and it changed. It just happened by his sheer power. So when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Not only has the water become wine, but it's become the best wine. And this would have been the best wine that mankind had ever tasted and will ever taste while on this earth because it just skipped the curse. Think about it. How do you get wine? You get wine by fermenting uh, crushed grapes. And how do you get grapes from vines? And how do you get vines from seeds? And how do you get seeds from other vines? But Jesus just skips the whole process. He just creates wine out of nothing, and it's the best wine. There's no grapes, there's no crushing, there's no fermenting. It's just by his miraculous power that wine appears. Which is power that God and God alone possesses. The conclusion then from this miracle that Jesus must be God. Because God is the only one who can create something out of nothing God is the only one who can create wine out of nothing. He's the only one that can turn the water into wine in a very instant just by thinking about it. That's God's power. And that's God's power alone. And I love as well, just, just another observation, that after he miraculously creates wine... He tells the servants to go and verify it. Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. Jesus, after he performs the miracle, sees to it that now the miracle is put to the test. He doesn't hide it away. And I love that because it's so practical. The point is that truth, God's truth, God's miracles, his power, aren't afraid to be put to the test. And that's what it's always like with truth. Truth never hides from scrutiny. It's always willing. Because that's what shows it up to be true. It's falsehood that shies away from the microscope. Falsehood doesn't want to be scrutinized because that will show that it is false. But truth, however, is always willing to be put to the test and because it's true. And it's just like all of Jesus' miracles, and it's just like his word. It's just like the Bible. You can put it to the test. You can examine it. You, and if you're honest with the evidence that you'll come across, you'll come to the conclusion that it's true. So that's the miracle which leads us to the last part of this message before we touch on application. That's the purpose. 
And that's found in verse 11, the purpose. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. We'll notice that as we go through this book, that whenever Jesus performs a miracle, John always calls them signs. Jesus' miracles are signs. That's what they are, and that's the purpose of them. What does a sign do? A sign points you to something. The sign is not the end goal. It's not the destination. A sign simply points you to something. And Jesus' miracles are pointing, um, pointing us to the very fact that he is God, that he is a God in human flesh. And that's always the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Jesus performs miracles to act as a sign so people would see past the miracle and put their eyes on him and see that he is divine. And we must understand that, that Jesus never did miracles just for the purpose of showing off. Matter of fact, he condemned the Pharisees when they asked, show us a sign. Come on, Jesus, do something. And he says, the only sign you will get is the sign of Jonah when uh, he was in the fish for three days and came out. It's a pointing to his resurrection. He's not in the show business. He only performs miracles to point to his power, the fact that he's God. So verse 11 says, This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. That's the purpose. That's the purpose for all his miracles, to strengthen faith in the hearts of his people. And that's the heart of John's gospel, isn't it? John 20, 31. We've been reminding of ourselves of this verse. These things have been written so that you may believe. Jesus' miracles are there so that we may believe that he is God. Now let's look at some application. Two points. I just want to bring out two points before we close. Firstly, just as his miracles are assigned to point people to his deity, his miracles also always fill a genuine need. Throughout the Gospels, God chose to reveal himself to mankind by doing miracles. And I think we see something of the heart of God when we realize that his miracles or his signs always fill a genuine need that people have. For example, Jesus was constantly healing people of sickness. Ailments that would have plagued them, some even for years, plagued them. He cured leprosy. He restored sight to the blind. He created strength in the legs of the lame. 
These were all genuine needs that people had. And you see something about the compassion of God to heal people. And this miracle, this sign is no exception as well. He saved a couple, primarily the groom, from massive shame. Because he cares. Now, I can't help but paralleling the fact that Jesus' greatest miracle, the cross and the resurrection, fills our greatest need. Just as all his miracles fill needs, his greatest miracle fills mankind's greatest need. And that's the need for forgiveness of sin and restoration with our Heavenly Father. That's the first point I want to bring out. And secondly, the last point. This miracle is a transformation miracle. Jesus transformed the water into wine. And I can't help but think that this is a display of his transformation power, which he and he alone can do. Only Christ has the power to transform the water into wine, just as it's only Christ who has the power to transform our lives. We were once sinners, held by our sin, condemned by our sin, but by the transformation power of Christ, he picked us up and changed us. And he changed us into saints. We were once water, unacceptable by the head waiter, unacceptable by the groom. But Christ has changed us into new wine. And we're now a people acceptable to God by his own power. We're no longer under God's wrath because he's transformed us. We've been changed. We've been adopted into God's family. The old is gone. The new has come. We're now new create, create creatures in Christ. And it's only by his power to transform a life. Only Christ can transform your life. Only Christ has that power. The question is, have you experienced his transformation power? Has he changed you? Has he given you a new heart, new desire, new love? Or are you still the same old water? Never been renewed, never been transformed. Are you still in your unbelief? I pray that you'd believe in Christ today and you'd experience something of his transformation power. Just as he can transform the water into wine and make it acceptable, so he can transform you from a sinner into a saint and make you acceptable. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had together. I thank you for your word. 
I thank you for your first miracle. I thank you that you are a miracle-working God. And Lord, I thank you for the greatest miracle that you've done in our lives. I thank you that just as you've transformed water into wine, Lord, you've transformed our lives. And Father, you did so out of your grace, out of your power. And we are ever so thankful, Lord. Help us, Lord, be servants like in the narrative who obey your command and do what you've asked of them. Lord, so that you may show your power amongst the people and as well so that you may bless us, Lord. So, Father, I pray that these truths would be ingrained in our minds and in our hearts. And Lord, just as we look at the water transforming to wine, we would never forget the transformation power taking place in our own lives by your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honour. In Jesus' name, amen.